Welcome to my Fear Street series review, and we're going to begin with an overview, a no-spoilers section. Once I begin talking about each film independently, we will be in spoiler territory. In case you haven't heard or seen anything about these movies, they are Netflix originals and they are titled as follows. Fear Street Part 1, 1994. Fear Street Part 2, 1978 and Fear Street Part 3, 1666. With those titles, that should give you an idea of the structure of each movie, as in 1994 is obviously going to feel and has homages to the horror of the 90s, same from 1978, and 1666 is obviously a bit of a period piece. Maybe you could think of M. Night Shyamalan's The Village, that type of thing, that type of setting. Previously, in my show for new shows that are coming to several different streaming platforms, I had stated to get ready for the R-rated Goosebumps product that we've all been waiting for, and I think that we pretty successfully got that. But don't misconstrue what that means. These are not Goosebumps movies, but rated R. Simply, they derive from the same author, R.L. Stein, who created the Goosebumps books. These books of his were in a series called Fear Street, where R.L. Stein got to kill teenagers instead of putting younger children in precarious positions that they always made it out of. As R.L. Stein himself was quoted saying, I've killed hundreds of teenagers, hundreds, and I don't know why. Why did I enjoy doing it so much? Why? And then I realized I had a teenager at home. Yes, he admitted to enjoying writing the slayings of these teenagers. While we are on that quote, I'll say that I think part one of this trilogy captured that enjoyment factor of killing teenagers the most. I would understand an argument for part two, so my bias may just come from which one I personally enjoyed more, part one which was a surprise and a disappointment for me because, in general, I enjoy the slashers of old more than the slashers of the 90s. I'm getting ahead of myself, though. I do think we got as good of an R-rated rendition of Goosebumps as you could expect without getting something completely corny that tonally probably wouldn't work. Another thing I want to bring up is that Obviously, these are different storytellers than those who worked on Goosebumps, and in both cases, they are adaptations from the source material. So, let's call the Fear Street trilogy the older, second cousin of Goosebumps that we didn't meet until 25 years after meeting Goosebumps. You can tell that they are from the same extended family, but there are also distinct differences in the two properties. If you liked Goosebumps growing up, I think you will probably find that you like the second cousin, aka Fear Street. If you are younger or were not into Goosebumps, but you've grown into horror as time passed, don't avoid Fear Street because you don't know Goosebumps. You're fine. There is no lore or an abundance of references from Goosebumps that you need to be aware of in order to enjoy Fear Street. And if that wasn't clear, yes, I am recommending the Fear Street trilogy. I'll sum my ratings up of it real briefly here. If we go with my thumbs up system, I texted to my buddy after watching each one of these. For part one, I gave it a semi-reluctant thumbs up. 
you know, I sort of made a face but still gave it a thumbs up. Let's call it three and a half stars out of ten. For part two, I gave it a two thumbs sideways, both of the thumbs hovering a little bit towards an upright position. Let's call it three and a quarter stars out of five. And for part three, I gave it one thumb in that same slightly upright position and the other in the exact opposite, wavering ever so slightly towards a thumbs down. Let's call that one three stars out of five. All in all, I give the series a thumbs up. I enjoyed it. I'm happy we got it. I hope we get more one-offs or something similar from the Fear Street novels. I will definitely come back for more of anything that gets connected directly or indirectly to this trilogy. If you are into horror, give it a shot. Just know that if you watch one, you'll basically need to complete the trilogy to truly see the entire story. If you dislike the first one, well, the second one is quite different and so is part of part three. Until they need to wrap up the entire story which means going back to part one, since that is the most recent chronologically, and obviously they couldn't tell us the conclusion to the story at the end of part one. All right, light spoilers ahead. I'm not going to outright spoil too much, but if you are sensitive to spoilers, some of what I talk about would clue you into some things. And I will add that because things build on each other, the further we get into the series, the more spoily spoilery things will get. And without frothy Purdue, let's dig into Fear Street Part 1, 1994, which starts off with a very, very 90s-style slasher scene at the mall. Even I felt the heavy scream homage that was happening. I rather enjoyed this beginning. Then we were introduced to a youngish kid having a conversation on the old AOL, which explains the story very directly. Although it may not be the most creative exposition, it is efficient in setting up this story. There were a lot of 90s songs that were absolutely packed into the introduction to our characters for the movie. I didn't like it, specifically when they cut from one song to another, to another, to another. It felt a little bit like a scene from Donnie Darko, but without any smoothness to the scene. That said, after the hodgepodge, they really toned down the music for the rest of the movie, and I thought they really had a good selection of music. From what I could gather, there was one current and one recent student from this small town school that both lost their lives in the introduction to the movie. No one was talking about it around school, and no one seemed sad about it. I found that to be odd. Then, a little later on, there is a vigil for the current student, which occurs while both Shadyside and Sunnyvale students are all on a football field. I still fail to see much sadness from the Shadysiders, where the victim of the murder was from. So, at this vigil, Dina and Sam end up off on their own. We find out they were in a relationship, and Dina is angry as she scolds Sam, saying, I know that douchebag out there was squeezing your ass. Which, Dina had already left the field prior to the ass grab, so like, how? Naughty editing. Bad. And here's something else that bugged me. At first, but then when I thought about it, it felt incredibly faithful to the movies of the 90s. There is a zero adult supervision going on, like a very unrealistic amount of a lack of any adults 
which is allowing for these kids to get up to whatever the hell they want to do. Along with that, there is a pump-up speech on the bus that is very corny, but yet again, it feels 90s, and it's a part of the corniness that we get from this series' relationship to the Goosebumps series, which helps to give this trilogy some character. Corny character, but character nonetheless. At this point, it must be a solid 20 minutes or so before I wrote my next note, so that's probably the first half hour of the movie that I just basically covered my thoughts from. Now let's get into some of my issues with the movie. It looks like I've got four items. First up, the movie attempts to explain that Sam is the only target of these killers. However, that does not explain a few of the other people's deaths. And this is an issue which I don't recall at this very moment if it comes up in part two, but it will be coming back in part three. My second issue is that I was also left wondering how they got so much of Sam's blood for the setup at the school. I understand some of it would have been combined with water to make it go further, but I'm not buying it. Which brings us to my third issue. While they were at the school... While they used up several gallons of Sam's blood, they attempted to reach out to a lady by the name of C. Burnham, and they left her a voicemail. I didn't double-check, but I'm pretty darn sure they did not leave her their addresses or phone numbers or enough identifying information for C. Burnham to be able to reach out to them like she did. And for the last issue here, let me start it off with a good thing. All in all, I thought that the acting was fine in this movie. I've heard some people rail on it, but I didn't really have any issues. I'd say the one critique, beyond my own, that I found myself agreeing with the most was that the teenagers didn't feel like teenagers of the 90s. My critique of the characters, and not the acting, was just that they all felt a little too mature for teenagers. I do think that was by design to a certain extent, given some of the material that we witness in this movie. Material that is a little awkward to watch as an adult because these actors do not look like they are the 28-year-olds that they are. They definitely look like they're uh, the age of the characters that they are playing. And I guess this was a sort of a twofer issue. The other part of this issue is with one of the actors, and that is with Dina. The main girl, she does this angry face thing a little bit too much. And it comes back in part three, too where there just isn't a whole lot of range outside of this rough, jaded exterior to her character, which hurt the ability to connect to her character because she was just so one-note. So that was one positive thing. Overall, I did think that the acting was pretty good. Let's get to the rest of the good. I liked Simon's character quite a bit. I've seen that actor once or twice before, and I feel like that this is his type of role, and he does a nice job with it. I actually wrote, gotta love Simon, but I don't recall exactly what scene caused me to write that. This is a super small thing, but I liked that at the school again, after they lit the joint ablaze, they also put the fire out instead of just letting the school burn down. There were some gnarly kills, especially the meathead kill. That was great, and unfortunately, I thought this was the best of the three in terms of kills. I expected part two to be the winner of best kills going into the series. Unfortunately, that was not the case. Uh, another good thing, I enjoyed most of the sets, and the cinematography was good too. 
I'm a sucker for bathing things in neon. It can be done poorly, but when it looks cool, it really looks cool, and I thought that they nailed those sets in this movie. The last thing, a positive note here, is that I liked the ending and I did not see it coming. Before moving on to part two, I felt like I had seen parts of the conclusion of this movie, at the grocery store specifically, and I have no clue from what though. If anyone out there is aware of a movie that they mimicked that you think I might be thinking of, let me know. It was very close to being deja vu levels for me, but obviously it's impossible for me to have seen the ending of this movie before, having watched it hours after it came out. So, what was my brain harking back to? Help me, please. Alright, alright, alright. Let's talk about part two, 1978, which picks right up where part one had left off. Before C. Berman tells her story, aka we see her story. Apparently, I was indifferent to the setup because it's not until a half hour in where there's a certain shot of the lake and a bonfire which gave me heavy Friday the 13th vibes, which is obviously the origins of the style of slasher movie that part two is going for on the whole, but that little moment stuck out to me as a very intentional homage that I liked. I feel like I didn't finish that thought, so it wasn't until a half hour in before I wrote my first note, which was that, essentially. The next note that I wrote was evidence that I got partially tricked for a certain amount of time in this movie, because I wrote, I think the way to settle the curse is fairly easy to figure out already. Gotta get all of Seraphir's body parts together, question mark? The question mark tells me that I had some doubts that it was so simple. I thought I was being clever, and that was the conclusion that we'd be getting in the end of part three, or throughout part three, well, for like the second half of part three. Basically, I thought the map was going to be where different body parts of hers were spread out, and that all that they needed to do was be reunited. Mistakes like that will happen when you're trying to jump too far ahead of the story like I always do. Then again, when I come up with three different theories, oftentimes I get close enough with one of them. Like the ending twist. I really liked the ending to the movie. I thought it was pretty strong, but because of the basic laws of cinema and where this story began, who the focus was first placed upon, Ziggy, I was expecting she was somehow going to have to assume the identity of her sister. That's where I went a little bit wrong. In order to trick the undead entities to leave her alone. However, based upon how different the two look and being in a small town, that would have been tough to pull off, but that's what I thought the big twist would be. There is a bit of a turn that the overarching story took, and that is one that I did not expect. So two for three at this point in the series for predictable storylines. Here's another quick example of me trying to out-clever the movie. When the one of the guys says L484 as he pops a pill, I googled L484 because I knew he was reading the type of the pill. Then they revealed what it was like five minutes later anyways. That said, I think they should have kept that a secret and let us think that they could be tripping on something. But I did not think that that was an issue. Let's talk about my issues. First issue. They sped up the camera, at least on the first occasion where Tommy kills, and they actually sped up the entire scene for some time. I hated that. I understand the trick if you want to make your killer look, like, glitchy, but 
then to have the normal people's movements so sped up was super strange to me. My second issue, how on earth did Alice suffer a compound fracture? Twisted ankle? Sure. Fractured ankle? Okay. Compound fracture? Break? I doubt it. I broke both of those bones in the ankle once. I went sheer through, and when I went to stand on it, there was literally, uh, it was impossible as far as I know, because when I did try to stand, my foot stayed in one spot, and the rest of my ankle went to another location that was not above my foot. Which leads right into the third issue. Alice's level of mobility for a compound fracture was too much. I don't mind having some mobility. At times, it was like they forgot that it was broken at all, though. I'll assume she only broke one of the bones, but if they're both sticking out, then zero mobility in my experience. Issue number four was that I felt like they didn't show much when it came to the kills. Now, this was said prior to a couple of decapitations, which they did show, and they showed the ankle bone thing. So what I think happened was that they had to limit what they showed for the majority of the kills so they could show us some more pretty gnarly stuff in a fewer amount of kills. Last up for my issue is that I thought the entire movie was littered with too much lore and backstories for the characters that just wasn't really needed. A few good things I took note of. I liked the music and how it was handled more in this movie. My favorite was Ziggy's song in the mess hall. I laughed at everyone's reaction when Tommy Good says to Ziggy that he is not going to let anyone hurt her. I thought that was great. And last up for the goods, <laughs> pun intended? And last up though, I thought the way that Cindy's boyfriend got his mask as a killer was really well done. It's one of the best ways that I've ever seen a killer get their mask. As the movie concluded, I wrote some things down. I guess we could call them a prediction as much as what I was gathering that the story's underlying meaning was. I wrote that I felt this story was definitely going to be an allegory for outside forces keeping people in shitty situations inside of those shitty situations, not letting them excel or get out of those situations. More specifically, institutionalized forces was my guess. And so, I nailed that. The next part of this, which sort of branched off of that, and was part of why I thought that, which was that Sam was a shady cider trying to quote-unquote get out. If you think of it, so was Cindy. So I thought the lore was going to be directly that the curse was trying to prevent shady ciders from leaving town with aspirations of having a better life. A third piece of evidence was that Ziggy was still in town, but she was still alive. The forces just didn't end up needing to kill her because of everything that occurred. Instead, she just became this shut-in of a person. After seeing part three, that was not exactly spelt out. However, I do think that that was like allegory part B that they sprinkled in there, which only enhances the OG allegory. And after part three, I'll have a little bit more on this. Speak of the Devil, 1666, part three of Fear Street. Let's do this. And let's just start off with the acting in 1666. Period acting is a tough thing to pull off, and unfortunately, most of these people just don't have the acting chops for this yet. It felt like I was watching a play. Even more so, it sort of felt like if you go to your local historical society and they do a reenactment, but well done. 
When I was a pretty young kid, we went to Salem, Massachusetts, and this felt exactly like that experience. In Salem, it was like the entire town is basically in on this gig. It's top-notch as far as reenactments go. They do this thing, or at least they used to, where they literally do a witch trial and they actually, like, the whole thing sprawls out into the actual town's streets. It's a very involved thing, from what I recall, and this reminded me so much of that, and some of that was the set work, but it was mostly the acting, I think. Good community theater acting, top-notch even. Movie acting? Not so much. I really felt like, based upon the short bits we got of the real Sarah Fear, when she's not Dina, that actress would have been great for that role. I would have loved to get more of her. Another issue for me, which they asked me to let slide, and I was able to for the most part, but the dumping of all the characters that we know into 1666 was a bit confusing, and I would have preferred if they had different actors, and we saw more flipping back and forth between their ancestors and their 1994 selves. I did like and understand the connections that they were making, sort of like their ancestors were basically the same people that they are in 1994 on a certain level. But keeping that in mind, the character of Tommy Slater, who was apparently a nice boy in part two, and then he's just like the town drunk and not nice at all, didn't fit for me. That said, I did like the actor's job with this character, Tommy Slater. I thought he was having a ball playing it, and that came through on screen. He seemed to be the only one really embracing and enjoying their role in 1666. I may cut this next part down in editing, but I don't want to, but in case I do, the quick of it is that there was some major layout slash set issues with the town hall slash church. The long of it goes like this. When Seraphir's trusted friend breaks into the church, everyone was trying to break in at what appeared to be the front doors, which would have been off to the right of the screen as we watch him walk into the church, but he appears to be walking through the front doors, and I don't see any reason that there would be a set of doors where the crowd had been attempting to enter originally. Shortly later, we can see the layout a bit better, and there are single doors on each side of the building, but no second set of large double doors. There are actually more issues with this entire setup that became apparent during the second scene at this location. I looked at both scenes several times, and yeah, they, they fucked up this entire set piece in all sorts of ways. As you can tell, I was not in love with 1666. Once we get a half hour into the movie, when the witch hunt began, things were picking up for me finally. I was actually getting invested and things were starting to feel a bit more like a movie than a play. A little bit of an extra spoiler warning for like the next 30 seconds to a minute. Jump ahead one minute and 15 seconds. So... I had a little trouble remembering what everyone looked like from their characters from some of them from like two weeks prior in part one, so I was not aware of who had the last name Good. I'm sure that it was said, Solomon Good, but as things were happening, it was very apparent that Seraphir was not the bad apple that we were led to believe in the previous two movies. Except for the short moment where we think Sarah is going to make a deal with the devil. So, for a good portion of the 1666 story, I had set my sights on the good family being our ultimate baddie. Lucky for me, as I just alluded to, I did not realize that Solomon was a good. I'm like 100% sure that his last name had been said, I just didn't catch it, and it wasn't said after I came to that conclusion. Because I actively was trying to figure out which character was a good once I thought that thought. 
Anyways, I was happy that I didn't because the twist got me then. I was totally on Solomon's side as being a good friend of Sarah's, so that's sort of a wash from my predictions, I suppose. Two for three still with like a plus one, we'll call it. Regardless, I thought that was really well done and it was a fun story arc slash twist before we uh, head back to 1994. I need your help again. Does anyone understand exactly why when Dina as Seraphir is kicking through the floorboards during her attempted escape from good, why do they heavily make references to a birth? She's in a birthing position, she's making the sounds of someone giving birth, and then she comes out of the floorboards with a top camera angle, making it look like a baby coming out of a womb. I, I mean, not exactly, but, you know, symbolically. I don't think there's any doubt that they symbolize birth there. I don't have any doubt in that, but I, I just couldn't understand for what or for why. My only guess was that, like, it's the birth of evil and the curse, but that doesn't really make sense for reasons that are apparent in the story, so, like, I don't know. Does she come out a new, stronger woman? I don't really think so. So if you have any theories as to what the intent could have been, please reach out and let me know. And FYI, I've finally made a Reddit account with the same name as my podcast. So there's a, another spot that you could do that. Which leads us to, well, not really leads us, but the last thing from 1666 is the soundtrack, the music. I really liked the theme a lot. I want to say more about it, but I don't think there's anything else that I could say. It was great. Which brings us to 1994. I thought the movie would improve, and although the acting came back up to a more acceptable level to me, I thought the storytelling became very flawed. In a sense of inconsistencies with these rules that they've created and more getting characters out of situations that the showrunners put them in by breaking the rules that the showrunners created. Let's call it Game of Thrones Season 8 style writing. The first one I told you I would bring back up while talking about Part 1. And it's an inconsistency with the behaviors of these undead supernatural killers. And when they do and do not ignore people. Right after one of them was unprovoked, yet they killed an officer. Ziggy reminds the mall custodian that they'll walk right past him. FYI, there was a second officer who was killed, but he shot at the thing like eight times, so I'm able to, you know, look past that issue that he should still continue to be going on unfazed. However, let's stick on that second slain. The undead dude was shot like eight times, and he was unfazed. Then later, Ruby Lane gets shot in the head, and she's just out. These aren't zombies, are they? I mean, shit, it's a very short bit after that, and they shoot the kid killer, the one with the bat, who I want to see more of that story so bad, but he's also unaffected, which, like, which one is it, movie? Are these bullets doing something or not? All right, so uh, more issues, but maybe not necessarily inconsistencies, so new list here, starting at my first one. What was their plan when they get them to fight with each other? They just sit around and watch as the undead folks are fighting. It was just 24 hours prior that they blew up the fuckers into an oblivion and they reformed, reformed in no time. They were aware that these things couldn't just die and that all they were doing was delaying things slash muddying the waters for these things, uh, incentives, what, what's driving them and their actions. However, when they do reform, 
Why aren't they fighting with each other again? Why aren't Ruby Lane and Bat Boy going after them? They should still have this blood on them. Speaking of that super soaker blood, did that come from the kitchen or something? I, honest to God, just think I missed a short bit of the movie where it was explained. But if it wasn't explained, or if the explanation sucks again and they, like, cut Sam open again... Once again, that was quite a lot of blood that they're using. It must have been from Sam, I have to guess. That would fit the lore. So isn't that the blood that... Well, because that's what... You know, the blood that's supposed to be attracting these things. Which brings up another issue. Dina cuts herself and it suddenly attracts all of these undead supernatural motherfuckers. Why? Are they Jaws now? Does it just any blood? New fresh blood attract them? If anyone gets cut open, they want their blood now? I, uh, Since we know that it is not Sarah Fear, did we just throw out the rules that seemed to be dead on from part one? That will happen. I think you can feel my frustration as I go through these. So, uh, last complaint here. It is said in 1666 that the devil would need a new sacrifice every few years in order to keep the goods family deal with the devil going. Let's pretend that that's five years, even though I kind of took it as like two or three. That would be like 65 people or more. Why are there only like 15 names on these ruins, uh, the stone things? Oh, Sorry. One, one last complaint. What is it with the, the time when they're finding out that uh, they're running out of blood by trying to use the water guns from like a mile away of their targets? You can say that they were just testing them, but A, you can see inside of those things. B, they legit aimed towards where they know Bat Boy, or where we know Bat Boy is hanging off camera, off screen. C, I knew they were low before they even tried shooting them myself. So if you think there may not be enough left, um, you know, to get like a good squirt on someone, then why would you be wasting it from so far away? D, those things don't ever shoot that far away, gosh darn it. This is a little pathetic, but here's the only positive thing that I wrote. I like the setup from part one with the B. Dalton's gate, which was hard to close. Although it was resolved without much anxiety being built, I still liked that little piece that they kind of set up so long before and then we got our payoff. You would think that I hated the entire mall scene because of all those issues and all of that being top of my mind it did not help my enjoyment. But it was decently fun, especially when they all turn on each other. It is riddled with issues, yes, but it's fun. I kind of wonder if maybe their budget got a little tight because it would have been cool to have a really nice soundtrack or some more 90s mall music that gets turned on during the entire mall scene. I don't remember anything of that sort happening. So there were no major twists, I guess. All in all, I found this entire story to be predictable in some ways, but also clever in other ways that did make a few of these twists land. It is well-crafted in that way. You might be able to figure out some things, but you're definitely not going to figure everything out. And for the most part, you can't figure things out before they want you to possibly be able to figure them out. But you do have the ability to figure the things out before they actually have the big reveals. And now for the last thing for today. Let's get back to that allegory. In part three, a few things become apparent. Hmm. 
I guess spoiler alert, even though I would love for you to be able to listen, if you took heed at the last extra spoiler warning, I'm going to be revealing some of what I had talked about during then. So jump to 33 minutes, 45 seconds. Probably just watch these and then come back and finish. We learn that it is the good family. We learn one of them is a politician. So all the more reason to think that they are very directly making the institutionalized discrimination allegory that the cops and the politicians are keeping the less fortunate in their circumstances. They're holding them down. They prey on the shittyville folks, framing them, causing them to kill one another, etc., etc., which kills the morale of this town folk from like the day that they're born. You can sense that. And then when someone does try to get out, they get pulled right back down. So the Sunnyvalers, aka the elite, can live on their side of the tracks in perfect harmony. I would go so far as to say that they put a little white privilege into this allegory as well. Don't get me wrong, white people died at the hands of this deal that was made with the devil. But it's just the underlying message that I think that they were going for. Anyways... Ziggy was spared by Nick Good, and you could take notice that Ziggy is the only predominantly white person in the final group that's trying to take Nick down. You could also argue that she represents what I believe is called a white ally, if that's not a term, I think it's clear enough anyways, but I don't know. Maybe it was a bit of both. You would have to ask the creators. That's just what I gathered when considering the allegory that I think was pretty clear. Maybe race had nothing to do with the intended allegory and that it was just strictly about classism. Regardless of anything, the creators did not dwell on this allegory. So in case you've still stuck around and you haven't seen these movies, but you've listened to the end here, you will not be bludgeoned over the head with an agenda. I did not think it was too heavy. There's a few things that were a bit on the nose, especially in part three, but um, mostly you'll just be bludgeoned by blunt objects and it's all pretty fun, lighthearted. So I hope you do watch these so that we can get more of them. I did not love them, but I really enjoyed getting some new R.L. Stein schlock. If you've already watched them, I would love to hear any of your thoughts or opinions. My twit name and email can be found in the description. Coming up soon, I'll have a Space Jam review either later today or like tomorrow. Soon. Soon. Today. Today. Then I've got Haley and I's discussion on the entire Conjuring franchise. That's been all ready to go for a little while now. I will release that towards the end of this month as we head into August and head into a spooky season. Anyways, thanks for listening. I love you. You love you. Peace out. Go Fear Street. Go, go, go Fear Street. Go Fear Street. Go, 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 go.